Welcome to Cornerstone Church. Good to see you this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the leaders here. Really, really good to see you. If you've got your Bibles, if you turn them to Exodus chapter 3, that's where we're going to be sat and making our way through today. Just to add on to Ben's message on Equip, if you're not in a gospel community, not yet plugged in, um, we would love you to get involved in one of these courses. This is a great way for you to come and meet people from the church, to get alongside people from the church, um, to see into the life of the church. So please come and see us. Don't feel that just because you're not in a gospel community or not yet connected that you can't come to any of these courses. We'd love you to come to these courses. Right, then I want to pray, and then we'll get straight, straight into it. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. The earth is full of your glory. I want to thank you that we get to look upon these words today, that we even get to think and ponder on your nature, on your holiness, on your perfect being. By your spirit, I pray, Father, fill us with an awe, fill us with a right fear, fill us with a, a wonder at who you are. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Hi right, then, folks. We're going to make our way through Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to make our way through it in sections so we can get a feel for what's going on. So let me start us off by reading verse 1, which will allow us to see into the, the backdrop and the background of what is going on here. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses, he was a man who had a few stories to tell. He was an Israelite, and he'd been born into horrendous circumstances. You see, hundreds of years before Moses' birth, his ancestors, Jacob and his family, they had settled in Egypt because of a famine. And at the time, they had a good relationship with the rulers. But Jacob's family grew and grew and grew. It grew from 70 up to millions, to the point that they actually became a threat to Egypt. And the Egyptian rulers, who didn't have that same good relationship that they had with them hundreds of years before, enslaved them. They put them under forced labor. They treated them ruthlessly. But Israel kept on growing numerically. So Pharaoh, who was the, the ruler of Egypt, he put this genocidal plan in place. We read about it in chapter 1 and 2. And this genocidal plan was to kill all the sons at birth. Or to throw all of the sons into the baby boys, into the Nile. And it's during this time that Moses is born as a baby boy. But before he could be taken and killed, his mother took him and hid him. And then after three months, when she could hide him no longer, she put him in a basket in the Nile. And by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter saw him, took him in. And Moses, by God's providence, was brought into the royal house of Egypt. And then one day, when Moses was 40 years old, so 40 years later, Moses saw an Israelite slave being mistreated by an Egyptian, being beaten. And so he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. And then he went on the run to a place called Midian, which is northeast of, of Egypt. And it's here that he marries a, a lady called Zipporah. He has children here. He has a father-in-law, Jethro, who's a, a God-fearer. And Jethro gave him a, a job to do, which was to look after all of his sheep. And when we meet Moses here in this verse, it's 40 years later again. So Moses is now 80. 
And Moses has been spending, he spent 40 years learning. He's learned all about God, we would think, from Jethro. He's learned how to tend and lead and protect sheep. He's learned what it means to have a family and to, to, to love his, his wife and children. And this day, by God's providence again, he is on the west side of the wilderness. He, is, he has come to the Mount Horeb. And Horeb, which is a, a, face, a, a place and a scene which we, we're going to know very well as we go through the book of Exodus, is also called Sinai. It's got two names, probably because it's either side of this mountain, the two faces of the mountain. And Moses, who writes Exodus for us here, calls Horeb the mountain of God because he knows exactly what it is that happens at this mountain. See, this mountain is a really important place for God's relationship with his people. It's actually the place where Moses is going to strike in anger at God. It's at the foot of this mountain that the golden calf was made. It is at this mountain where God descends in smoke and fire. And it's at this mountain where God gives the commands and the laws and the instructions for his people. It's where he makes his covenant promises. And it's here that we have the first meeting as we come to it. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses is going about his business, tending his sheep. When the angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire in the bush, the angel of the Lord is what, what theologians call a theophany. And a theophany is when God makes himself known and seen amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. And fire, as he is manifested here through the Bible, and especially as we're going to work our way through Exodus, is a sign of God's presence. See, and folks, this is huge. Because since the beginning, right at the start of the story in Genesis, in Genesis 3, we see that there is a separation between God and humanity. And earth is the place of humanity and heaven is the place of God. And the two didn't mix. But the story of the Bible is actually the story of how heaven and earth, the place of God and man, become united again. And here what we see is heaven, the place of God, coming down. God's presence coming down, shown in the fire. But, but it's a unique fire. We read it there. Moses is struck by it because the bush is not consumed. I love watching fires. Seeing the, the flames move and dance. Seeing the, the way that the branches change in the color and the way that it burns and turns to coal and turns to embers. But here there's none of that. The fire's burning by itself. This fire needed no fuel. This fire wouldn't run out. It's not like fire as we or as Moses would know it. God here is revealing himself to Moses. And Moses, he's intrigued. He recognizes something different going on here. So, so he turns aside. We read that in verse 4. And God calls him by name. God knows him already. God calls a specific human being at a specific moment in time to turn and face him. 
And this interaction that follows reveals so much about humanity or to engage with God. You see, what does God do? He calls him and then stops him coming near. Do you see that? Don't come near. Take your sandals off. And then he tells him why. Because the ground that you are standing on is holy. God is revealing himself here as holy. God is holy. See, we say holiness and often we think purity or rightness in a, in a, in a moral way. And that's not wrong. But the Bible is using it here and in other places in a, in a deeper way about, about God. And holiness implies there's a, there's, a, there's a separateness about God. There's a set-apartness about God. That God is set apart from what he has made. So what that means is that God is above, above and beyond all of creation. There is a distinction. He is transcendent. So God exceeds our limits. He rises above and beyond us. So there is a gap between the divine and the human, a gap between the creator and the created. And so we can't just stroll into God's presence because he is holy. Take off your sandals. God's very presence makes the ground holy. And there's a powerful force in God's holiness. And the sandals of the earth, the dust, the uncleanness of it, a symbol of, of Moses' creatureliness, his uncleanness, and the death that clings. God says, you approach me the way that I tell you to approach me. But he also gives him comforting words. You know me. I'm the God of your father. The God that your father told you about. I'm the God of promise. I'm the God of your ancestors. And, God, and Moses, he responds rightly to God's holiness. He, he won't look. He doesn't presume that he can look upon the face of God. And then we see God's plan unfold. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says to Moses, I have seen the affliction. I've seen the pain. I've seen the hardship. I've seen the suffering. I've heard what my people have been praying to me. I have heard their cry to me. I know what's happening. I know how bad things are, how bad they've got. And I've come to deliver. I've come to rescue my people. I've come to bring them out of Egyptian captivity. And he says here that I'm not just going to free them from slavery. I'm actually going to free them to something, to a land a land of plenty, a broad land. He's saying, I've prepared a place for you. I've prepared a place for you, my people, to be with me. And this land, this land's a fertile land. It's fertile enough that it can have pasture and it can support cattle so that the cattle can produce milk. And it's fertile enough that it can have vegetation and plants and an abundance of plant life. Plant life. So there's enough plants that you can have bees producing honey. 
God is saying, the time has come for my people to come home. As I promised to Abraham, the people that inhabited the land have had their time. Imagine what Moses is thinking. So I think at this point, he must be thinking, wow, this is mind-blowing. What a mighty move of, of God. How is he going to do this? And then the bombshell of what God says must have hit him. I'm sending you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You are going to be my mouthpiece. I'm going to work my salvation through you, a man. You're my representative. You're my prophet. You're going to take my words. Moses is like, wait, wait, what? And he asks a question. Who am I that I should go? Why, why, why me? And on one hand, this kind of quite natural when you know the context that I've just explained. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. He's 80 years old. He murdered an Egyptian and he's been on the run ever since. He's been hiding. The Egyptians probably ate him. The Egyptians probably want to kill him. And the last time he tried to liberate Israel, they turned on him. But God's reply here shows that Moses has completely missed the point. Let's just check and, and make sure we see what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, do you know what, Moses, you're great. You know what, Moses, you spent time in Egypt learning loads of really important stuff. Do you know what, you got a degree. You got the best academic training you're ever going to get. You got all the skill you could have. You can do this, go get him, Tiger. In fact, you know what, he doesn't even say to him, Moses, you're adequate for this. That's not what he says. Do you know what he says? He says something far more comforting and far more reassuring. He says this, I'll be with you. That stuff just pales into insignificance. I will be with you. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I actually think he's saying, of course you can't do it. Of course you're not adequate. I'm telling you that I'm going to do this through you. You have no idea what I can do. No idea. And then he gives him a sign. It's really interesting, I think, because the sign is actually after it happens. He says, my people will serve me on this very same mountain. The mountain that he has revealed himself to Moses on. Which I think is a great reassurance when you know the story for the time that Moses has ahead of him. There's a, a ta in town, there's a, a statue on the outside of Lewis's. It's from the, you know, the famous song, In My Liverpool Home, We Meet Under a Statue of Exceedingly Birds. It's a statue of a naked man. Top. It's quite famous in Liverpool. If you're from Liverpool, you'll know it. But you'll have walked past it loads, and you'll walk underneath it loads, and you probably won't have battered an eyelid at all. But that statue's actually where my mum and dad met, by accident. My dad was meeting a friend, and met a girl, and my mum was meeting a friend, and they didn't turn up, and they ended up getting together. And obviously off the back of that meeting, then there was loads of other stuff that happened. I mean, I'm here as a result of that. So every time I go past that statue in town, I am reminded of all these different things. It just comes on, it's just like poof. In my head and the memories and all the things that come with it. And this is what Moses is getting from God. So much happens on this mountain. Remember my promises. Remember my love. Remember how I made a, a, a promise for these people. Remember what I said I would do. Remember my presence. Remember my promises. Remember my power. But then Moses replies with another question, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses replies with a question. He's kind of saying, look, I'm asking for a friend. What if they actually want to know who you are? I think what Moses is actually asking is, who are you? What is your name? And look at God's reply. It's really interesting. First, his reply to Moses, I am who I am. He's saying to Moses, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I am God. I think, as I read this, he's actually saying to Moses, you can't understand me. He's setting a groundwork for me. You can't categorize me. I am beyond your definition. I am God. No one and nothing defines me but me. But then he says this, say to my people, Israel, I am sent you. I am the God who is. That's my name. This has such richness and such depth because this name reveals God's character. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there are different names that God gets called by. There's a name, El, which is generic, like a generic term for God. So Elohim, living God, or El Shaddai, the God of power. And here there's a different type of, of name being revealed. God is actually revealing something of his, of his essence, of his inner being. He's revealing who he is. And what it means is I am the one who is. He who is. A Dutch commentator, Herman Babing, says this. He says, God is that which he calls himself. And he calls himself that which he is. God is who he is. No being ever made God. You know, this question from your kids all the time. So, so who made that? Well, God. Well, who made God? It's always the follow-on question. No being ever made God. He's eternal. He is without beginning and he is without end. God is absolute perfection. He is constant and he is unchanging. God is means that God always has been. God always will be who he is. God is means he created all things. So outside of God's being, there is nothing. God is self-existent. He is utterly independent. He depends on nothing and no one to bring him into being. Which means that everything else is dependent on him. The universe is kept going moment by moment by God's decision to keep it going. God upholds the universe in existence every single millisecond. And God does what he wills with no constraints, with no external influences. God is ultimate reality. God is ultimate beauty. God is ultimate in every sense. Every sense. 
And folks, can I, can I just say, this has been a, quite hard to, I can't get my head around this. So to try to explain to you something that I can't get my head around has been really difficult this week and has actually probably torn me in circles all through this week. It's just grated in, in loads of different ways as I've thought, how do we explain this? But you know what, folks? There is a comfort in the godness of God. God is God. And it's something I, th- I think that I see as we read Exodus that Moses grows in. And it's something that I want to circle back around to a bit later because I think this is something that we need to take away. God answers further. He actually helps them understand who he is and he, he helps them understand who he is in a, in a further way by showing them what he does. He says, tell them I'm the same God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Tell them I'm the God of, pro, uh, God of promise. I am the covenant-making God who has moved and acted on behalf of his people. He says, gather the elders. Tell them exactly what I told you. That's what happens in verse 16 and 17. It's basically just the same message that he repeated to Moses. He's basically saying, you're my mouthpiece. It's my words you speak. Speak my promises. And then in verse 18 to 22, we get them sent to send into Egypt. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. This is incredible. See, what happens is God sends Moses to do something that he knows every detail of. And God promises, look, they're going to listen to you. You will go to them and they will listen to them. And you will go and meet with the king of Egypt. You will go and name me as your God and you will go and name them as your people. And you will tell them to let you go three days, which is a long journey into the wilderness so that you can sacrifice to me. I am your God. But he warns them, he's not going to let you go. He's telling Moses what is going to happen in advance. You see, Pharaoh, he wanted Israel to serve him. His name itself implies he claims some sort of divinity. See, the people of Israel were valuable to Pharaoh. Of course they were. They were a huge free workforce. They were building all of his cities and all the different monuments that he was having make. They were working, creating the economy. It would be weakness for him to let go. It would be weakness to admit that there was something more powerful than him. God tells Moses it's going to take great might and great power. Verse 20 to 21, you read a lot of I wills. I will stretch out my hand. I will do wonderful work. I will strike Egypt in such a way that he will let you go. I am God. I will make this happen. And he ends it by saying, look, you're going to go provided for because you're going to plunder the Egyptians. This, folks, is all of God. To understand this, Egypt was the biggest superpower of the day, the strongest nation with the biggest army, the most influential nation with the most wealth. Israel was a nation of slaves. Slaves do not get to plunder a strong nation. And in warfare, what happens is the victorious male warriors who would plunder the goods. But in God's power and strength here, the vulnerable women and children of a slave nation 
plunder the riches of the most powerful nation on earth. And their redemption, their freedom, it includes being given gifts. It's a wonderful picture. And we see that they will use these gifts in their service to God. See, these gifts that they receive are the very gifts that they use to then go and build the tabernacle, the place that God dwells. God is saying, I will be with you. I will speak through you, and I will make this happen, and I will provide for you. So what can we take from this? I've just got three things that I want us to, to take away. So much, please. I, I would genuinely ask, spend each day just reading and praying through this. There's so much here. You cannot, you cannot get to the depths of what is going on here. So please spend time reading and asking God by his spirit to help you this week. But here's just three things that I'd like you to think about and pray about as, as we go today. First of all, there is, a comfort in our, there is a comfort in our confident approach of a holy God. What happens here at the start is Moses, he hides his face because he feels unholiness. And he knows that he's in the presence of holiness. And we see as Exodus unfolds through this story that God makes it possible for his people to be with him and for him to be with his people. But it's through sacrifices. And we know that God the Son, the holy, unchanging one, the self-existent one, the great I am, stepped into the sinfulness, the brokenness, stepped into the world and became flesh and was born. He lived a perfect, holy, pure life. I like that we couldn't live. And he took our sinfulness, he took our unholiness upon himself. So he became sin. So the holy one became unholy on a cross. He became the sacrifice, took our punishment and absorbed all of God's anger at our sin and was killed in his humanity to be raised again three days later to newness of life. The first fruits of a new creation a perfect, holy, new world order. The Bible tells us that he ascended into the throne room of heaven, earth and heaven together in Jesus right now. Everything comes together in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. How can an unholy man approach God? How can an unholy people approach God? The answer is, folks, we can't. But Jesus Christ, the only holy man who ever lived, can, and he has. And trusting in him, trusting in him, we can approach the throne room of heaven as children of the living God. Sinful humanity can approach a holy God confidently and boldly through Jesus. Number two, there is comfort in the godness of God. I really want us to take this away, folks. I really do. Because I think the godness of God helps, helps to give us a, a right perception and an understanding of life. I've been listening to a few um, philosophy podcasts at the moment, and, and some of them, a lot of them are talking about beauty and creation. And the guy I was listening to yesterday, he was an Irish philosopher, he started quoting Pascal, and he said this, you should always keep something beautiful in your mind. And he landed it in a beautiful scenery in creation. And if you think about it, when you look at, at, at beauty in creation, when you see that beautiful scene of a mountain, or a valley which is huge, or the, the grandeur of the ocean, you get a feeling, don't you, of, of awe. You do, just naturally, it sits in you. You get a feeling of, of power, a feeling of something wonderful. But, but also with that comes an inbuilt, an inbuilt sense of a purpose, of some meaning, a sense of place and proportion. And what saddens me is, as I listen to these 
brilliant mind is they're saying something beautiful, but they're just scratching the surface and missing the point. Because all of these things point to the beauty, the transcendence, the power of God. We are made by God, who is ultimate beauty. He is above and beyond us. See, these, these mountains, the, the creation, the things that make our jaws just drop and just stand and go, wow, are actually insignificant in comparison to the holiness and the beauty and the transcendence of God. And to see that transcendence of God is, is comforting. Comforting. It gives us a sense of a purpose, of meaning, of place. There is a great comfort in the godness of God and allowing and seeing that God is God. I'm not trying to put him in a box. I'm not trying to contain him. But I think there's a danger as well for us as we read Exodus. Thinking that, well, this Moses is God. He's different to the God that we have in the New Testament, isn't he? he he's different. And so we separate God of God. We disconnect him. I'm not sure about that God, but when Jesus comes along, great. I love him. I can give him a hug. But God is unchanging. God is constant. God is who he is. J.A. Packer, an American commentator, says this. It is true in terms of space and time that the culture, the biblical authors, and the history that the Old Testament belong to, they're a long way off us. But there is a link between them and us. And that link is God. In fact, it exa is exactly the same God because he doesn't change. So the God who is in Exodus 3 is the God that we worship. The God of Moses is the Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God has revealed himself to us. God himself has come down the mountain to us in the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. God became flesh. God became flesh. The Son of God who is, who is other and transcendent, above and beyond us, became one of us. See, Jesus Christ, he became human in every way. And that is just incredible. That should blow your mind. But we mustn't forget, folks, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The Son of God has always been, is, and always will be God. The Son of God is unchanging, he's all-powerful, all and he's transcendent. The book of Hebrew reveals that it's Jesus Christ who holds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. John's Gospel has some really interesting passages. We preach through it in the summer. You get these seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am the shepherd, I am the door, I am the resurrection, I am the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But there's one that, that people don't often look at. Just before Jesus dies, and it's when Jesus is arrested and the, the, the people, all the armies and the soldiers, they come towards Jesus and, they, and, and Jesus says to them, who do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Jesus says in reply, I am he. Do you know what they do? They fall over. They just fall over. They fell down at the name of God. Why? Because he's God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the God who is transcendent and all-powerful. There is comfort in the godness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is able to do what he has promised to do. Exodus 3 points to and comes together in Jesus. Heaven came to earth. The Son of God manifested, incarnated, became flesh. He who is holy and transcendent came to restore and to redeem his people. 
And folks, he promised that he's coming back. Heaven and earth united. That's what happens at the end of the story. Heaven and earth are united in a new creation. And it's a place, folks, where not just the ground around Moses' feet is holy, but where everything is pure, everything is right, everything is holy. No sin, no death, no decay. When he returns, folks, every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And lastly, there is comfort in God's purposes and God's presence in Jesus Christ. A secular philosopher called Martin Heidegger, he says this, it's got a famous, famous saying. Modern man feels as if he has been hurled and thrown into a chaotic world. He has no meaningful being. He's emerged from the slime. He's a grown-up germ. He's moving as the clock ticks every moment to his annihilation. Suspended between birth and death in a context, a vortex of meaninglessness that is always eating away at him. Without God, that's the reality of your existence. Anxiety, fear, hopelessness. But what we get in this account of Moses and God is a window into God's sovereignty, God's rule and reign. God is telling Moses exactly what's going to happen. He's telling Moses exactly what's going to be said. He's telling Moses exactly how they're going to respond. He knows all of the details ahead of time. And the fact of God's sovereignty means that there is a purpose and a plan. It means that there is ultimate purpose and meaning. You may not know what the future holds. In fact, you could be scared right now. You could be fearful. You could be anxious. Worried about even what maybe tomorrow brings. But God knows. The whole of history is moving in his direction. He is over everything. He is moving everything and he is ordaining all things. And there is a great comfort in that. And there is further comfort in his presence through that future. You see, Moses is sent by God with the words of God himself, this message of freedom to God's people. But he doesn't go alone. He goes in the power and he goes in the presence of God. God says, I will be with you. Folks, we are sent by God too. We are sent with words of God's message of freedom in Christ. Right at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus stands before his disciples and he tells them to go and tell people about me. Tell them. Tell them about, tell them about what I've done. Tell them about the freedom that is there. Tell them about the sin that is forgiven. Tell them about the new life that can be theirs. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Baptize people. Live this out. Walk in faith together and I'll be with you. That's what he says. I'll be with you even to the end of the age. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, you go in my power and you go in my presence. You feel inadequate today? That's okay. Boy, do I. That's okay. He's with you. It's his power and it's his strength. You feel scared and anxious and unsure of what the future may hold? God knows. He knows. And no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what the next week brings, no matter what the next month brings, no matter what the next year or decade or century brings, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. God is saying, I will be with you. I will speak through you. I will build my kingdom and I will provide for you. Let me pray.
Father, it feels as we read this passage that we too are stood on, on holy ground, Father. We read a passage like this and we see your infinite eternal character and it can, it can, it can be so much, Father. But Father, what we see here is in your grace, a man being called to yourself. You see the message of freedom. You see your presence being brought. You see you doing everything that is needed for us to be with you and to approach you. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of your presence. Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that we, as we sit here this morning, feel in our own unholiness, feeling maybe the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we carry, the guilt that we carry, that we struggle with daily, the shame that we feel, the tension that we feel in our life that just pours into our heads and invades our thoughts and permeates into our souls and distorts us. Father, we feel it. But you are holy. Father, we feel our frailty. We feel our vulnerability. We feel our weakness. We feel our fear. We feel our anxiety. We have these thoughts that just won't stop. We have these emotions that we can't get control of, yet you are God and you are in control. You are all-powerful. You are eternal. You are infinite. You are the God who is. You are unchanging. You are self-existence. You depend upon no one and nothing. You are God. Father, by your Spirit, I pray today that you would just help us here today. Please just grasp that. Not in a way that we think we can understand that, but grasp that as we look at the, the scenery of the mountain which just fills us with awe. I pray that we would see the same with you, that we see you in your character and are filled with awe. And that we would feel safe in your presence. Not because of what we have done, because of what you have said and because of what you have done in Christ. Amen. It is a wonderful time, I think, that we get to do what we get to do now, folks. This is not like, please don't think this is just the next part of today's service. This is not. This is part of what we are speaking about here. We are getting a, a passage here of Scripture which reveals that God has come, the infinite eternal God has come to a people to make himself known. And we know that God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to us, lived amongst us. See, we get to touch this bread and this wine. And this bread, it is torn. The wine is poured out. It's a picture of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the majesty, the holiness, the self-existent one, the other one. And this mystery, this miracle actually became flesh and took upon himself all our unholiness, all our guilt, all our shame and absorbed all of the anger that caused the separation between us and God because of our sin. He absorbed it all into his own body so that it's all gone. So the guilt that you carry, folks, is gone. It's gone. It's been nailed to the cross if you trust in Jesus. 
If you don't trust in Jesus today, turn to him now, please. He is good. He is beautiful. He forgives. And the shame that you carry daily, he took upon himself. That bread has, bread has been broken, the, the wine has been poured to show that he has done it. He has poured it out. He has poured his life out for you. You are clean if you trust him. Your sins have gone. You can boldly approach the throne room of heaven. Not as a stranger, but you approach the throne room of heaven and go very into the throne room of heaven as a child of God. Straight up to your Father. Safe. And he is with you. So folks, I pray that as this bread and this wine comes around, if you don't believe, I pray, I pray that you let it pass. But consider the words that you have heard and come speak to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to tell you more about this beautiful Savior that we have. But can I ask as you, as you take this, the guys will play just a bit of music in the background if you don't mind, guys. I would really like you to do something that's been on my heart all week. I have felt in awe of God and I've felt inadequate. God has been laying on my heart. He's with me. It's not about how adequate I am. It's about the fact that he is with me. As you hold this bread and hold this wine, would you pray and ask that God would really reveal to you by his spirit how much he loves you, that he is with you, and that he will always be with you, no matter what tomorrow may bring. I ask that you would do that. If you need prayer about anything, to be people... Here, I'll be at the front. To be others at the front here, Sean, stay a bit at the front here. Myself and, and Bonnie and Luke and Mel and others will be around. Just come and get prayer. We'll put your hand up and people around you will pray. If the guys can give the bread and the wine now, it'd be great.